Most people who start nonprofits, and this was certainly my experience, are so excited about doing something specific, getting something done, about running programming, that it's really easy for the large majority of your time and effort and attention to go into that rather than into the building the institutional infrastructure. But starting a nonprofit, especially if you have any hope of the thing being sustainable and passed on and not just being a kind of means towards supporting your own personal ministry, um, you really have to think of it very differently. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Next Donor. I'm your host, Andy Jones. On Next Donor, we gather practical insights from nonprofit leaders on what it takes to grow your organization and donor relationships. Next Donor is brought to you by Roundtree. I lead Roundtree. We help organizations improve their communications with donors. We create a customized plan and do all the work to execute it. We make it possible for your organization to improve relationships with existing donors and acquire new ones through clear, consistent, and creative communications. Find out more about us at roundtreeagency.com. On today's episode, I speak with Carl Johnson, Executive Director of the Consortium of Christian Study Centers. Carl received his bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, where he stayed around and would later start Chesterton House, a Christian study center serving students at Cornell. So Carl knows what it's like to start a nonprofit and lead a nonprofit that has a very specific focus. And so I wanted to have him on the show to share his experience so others could learn from it. So let's jump into my conversation with Carl Johnson. Welcome to the show, Carl. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be with you here today. So, Carl, I've gotten to know you uh, a little bit over time, but uh, for the sake of our listeners, uh, before we talk about Chesterton House and study centers, uh, who is Carl Johnson? And uh, tell us about your story prior to starting Chesterton House. Sure. Well, uh, thank you. I've been up here in Ithaca, New York, where Cornell University is for well over 30 years now. I came up here as a student in the mid-1980s. And um, probably the, the the biggest part of my life prior to getting involved with uh, the Christian Studies Center movement was my first career, which was outdoor education. And that took shape during my undergraduate years when I when I first came up here. Um, I was involved on the soccer team. That was kind of like my big thing. But over the course of my years at Cornell, I got very involved in what people think of popularly as outward bound style programming Mm -hmm. and education. Uh, So I did some very long distance bicycling, uh, a lot of uh, whitewater paddling and rock climbing. Um, I did an entire semester program at sea, sailing up and down the Atlantic Ocean. 
Um, and I, in particular, did some very high altitude mountaineering going up around 20,000 feet a couple of times. And I just fell in love with this stuff. And I decided to make that my career, which I did. And uh, for a few years, I was running outdoor adventure trips for so-called at-risk youth, adjudicated youth. Um, and then I came back up the hill to Cornell, uh, where I was a program director in outdoor education and ran uh, the Cornell Team and Leadership Center for a decade, basically. Uh, designed the university's ropes course facility, a very large facility, and, and ran that uh, for quite a while. Wow. So outdoor. So it sounds like, yeah, the first part of your career academically and then professionally was focused on the outdoors. Um, so I'm just yes. curious, by the way, I got to know what is today your kind of preferred outdoor uh, adventure? Uh, well, it, it changes with different stages of life. So um, for several years, my my favorite outdoor activity became hide and seek. <laughs> so there, there came a day when my kids outgrew that. Um, and then, you know, there was the playing catch phase of life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, now that I'm on the verge of being an empty nester, I'm, I'm sort of back to, to bicycling and hiking. Um, during the pandemic, my wife, Julie, and I spent the winter last winter uh, hiking the entire Finger Lakes Trail, uh, which in the winter has, has, you know, three to four feet of snow on it. So we were really snowshoeing um, this 150 mile trail, uh, about eight or 10 miles each Saturday. And, um, you know, we've lived here for a long time and never done that before. So that was a, a nice little side benefit of the pandemic, if you will. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Um, so it sounds like outdoor education led you uh, into the life of Cornell professionally, you know, yes. employment and whatnot. Um, yes. So that brings us to Chesterton House. So what led you to, to start Chesterton House? Yeah, so I'm I'm working in outdoor education uh, through my 30s, really uh, approaching age 40, and um, I find myself thinking, you know, is, is this it? Am I going to stick around here and do basically this for the rest of my life? I I, I didn't really have um, a, a lot of opportunity for moving up. It's not like I wanted to be the athletics director and you know oversee you know all the all the football team and that sort of thing. Um, you know, or is there something else for me to do here or elsewhere? And um, I, I love the university. Uh, Cornell's a, a wonderful place in many, many ways. I, I have always felt that, you know, one thing the university didn't do very well um, was dealing with religion, if you will, in the broadest sense, uh, both academically with respect to religious knowledge claims, um, but also the accommodation of religious communities within the university it seems to be sort of, you know, uh, tolerated in some sense, but not yeah. necessarily seen as, as much of an asset. Um, and so I started uh, the, the, the vision for Chesterton House, which kind of emerged in me in the, in the late 90s, was born out of frustration, really. And it was a twofold frustration, and, and, and both sides of this are important. One was a frustration with the university culture. And it's not distinctive to Cornell, but just the, the sort of very secular culture that, that treats uh, faith as if it's a purely private matter that really has no... 
um, public significance or academic significance. So that was a frustration. But the other frustration was a kind of anti-intellectualism in the church and in the religious community, which also, um, you know, seemed unfortunate and unwarranted. And so at a certain point in time, I called together a group of professors and pastors and I said, I'd like to do something new and different instead of just, you know, cursing the darkness. Isn't there a way we could light a candle, so to speak? Um, I don't know what this looks like, but I'd like to, to create something that is at once uh, academically responsible enough to have the respect of the most skeptical secular professors, but at the same time, um, something that is faithful to historic Christianity and will have the respect of the local church community. And um, a number of these folks responded very enthusiastically. And then we started wondering, okay, well, what's that going to look like? And somewhere along the way, somebody said, you know, there's some folks down in Charlottesville, Virginia, who are doing something like this. You should take a look mm -hmm. at that. And so I did. I wrote a letter uh, to Drew Trotter, who at the time was the director of the Christian Study Center in Charlottesville. And he wrote back, sent me a packet of information. And I looked at it. I said, wow, this is amazing. This is pretty much what I have in mind. And uh, so I distributed that to our core group and we formed a board. And in 2000, Chesterton House was born. Wow. So I, I was curious, your own faith journey, like, uh, did you come into Cornell when you were a student as a, a Christian or what was your Christian formation during that period of life? Yeah, so I grew up in a mainline Presbyterian home and um, in Metro New York area. So uh, evangelicalism was not like part of the landscape at yeah. all. Um, you know, uh, uh, on the radio, for example, you know, there were exactly zero Christian radio stations yeah. and, and about the same as the number of country music stations. You know, that's just yeah. not, not, not the world that was Metro New York, especially back in the 1970s. Um, I came up to Cornell. It's, it's only four hours away from New York City, but it's like a different mental universe, right? And it's much more secular, uh, much more militant. And the antipathy toward persons of faith is much greater here. Um, you don't get to just go to church every Sunday and not have people criticize you for it, which struck me as really odd and very strange. And um, while many people respond to that, I, that pressure, I guess, by um, you know, casting off their faith. Uh, for me, it had the opposite effect. It, it made me ask questions, you know, that took me deeper into the faith. I'm reminded a little bit, and I'm sure we'll get around to talking about Chesterton, but Chesterton's got this line in his book, Orthodoxy, where he, he says, you know, people would say of Christians that they were simultaneously sexually repressed and responsible for world overpopulation. And he says, this must be a very interesting religion. I've got to learn more about this. So I had a little bit of that same, you know, like, why are people, you know, so, you know, they have such a bug in their bonnet about this, this yeah. faith thing. And uh, it actually took me kind of deeper into, um, at first, the literature on, on the faith, um, you know, from a kind of philosophical, historical perspective, but later, really into the uh, church community. So, yeah, so you, ha you, you were, had this vision for a study center, and uh, then you had to brand it. Uh, so how did you land on the name Chesterton House? 
Yeah, well, uh, it was a very specific day. Uh, a group of us that was the the founding board was sitting around uh, a conference table and we said, what are we going to call this thing? And we were inclined to come up with a specific name. So it had a concrete feeling to it. And we, we threw around a whole bunch of different names, each of which, as you might imagine, had problems associated with it of various sorts. And then somebody said, what about Chesterton? And as soon as Chesterton's name was mentioned, everybody started sharing their favorite Chesterton quote or their favorite Chesterton story. And everybody was laughing and it was fun. And I, I remember kind of just looking around the table and I thought this, this spirit, this is what I would like to characterize the ministry. Um, you know, something that's, that's at once um, wise and winsome, but also joyful at the same time. And uh, I took a little bit of additional time to do some further reading and research on Chesterton uh, before we locked into that as our name. Um, but we did so promptly, and I never regretted it. He wrote uh, widely on all mm -hmm. kinds of topics, which is part of what we aspired to do at the study center was to offer reflections, you know, that are interdisciplinary across all kinds of um, topics and fields. Uh, and he did so uh, very insightfully, very winsomely. Uh, mm. You know, he, he, he had humor, he had humility, um, all the sorts of things that we aspired to. That's great. Uh, so, you know, our listeners may not be familiar with the concept of a Christian study center, right? They may have not been at a college uh, where one was located. So how would you describe, but, but my guess is, they may have a concept for like a campus ministry. Um, so yeah, how would you uh, describe what, what makes a study center kind of different from a campus ministry? Sure. I'll start with a, just an example first, and then I'll try to answer your question a little bit more directly. So when I first started Chesterton House, campus ministries uh, commonly would bring a speaker in from out of town. And sometimes I would go to listen to the speaker they brought in. Uh, and it was common that they would have, you know, 30 or 40 people in attendance. And I would think, wow, this speaker is fantastic and really deserves a larger audience. Hmm. And so I started reaching out to the various campus ministers. And I said, um, what do you think about this? What if when you're sponsoring a speaker from out of town, you let me know, and I'll reach out to all the other campus ministers and let them know and see if they're willing to promote it among the students involved in their ministries. And let's go from there. Uh, and we started doing that. And at one of the very first events, we didn't know how many people were going to show up. I reserved a, a lecture room with 380 seats, and it was standing room only. Wow. And so, you know, the attendance at these events that were already happening went up on the order of tenfold hmm. just due to a coordinating effort. Hmm. And, you know, I was doing this, you know, part time, a few hours a week while still working for Cornell. It wasn't rocket science. It, it just required um, somebody to sort of, you know, take a, a, a broader view of what was going on on the campus than the other campus ministers had. And it's, it's no criticism of them. I'm, most mm -hmm. of them are, are, are not alumni of the institution. They're coming and going once every few years. They've got a lot of work and a lot of students. 
Um, and they were very happy to collaborate and work with me. And I'm happy to say, you know, for 20 years, we've managed to maintain that kind of unifying, gathering, serving function among, you know, the, the landscape of campus ministries. Now that um, after we uh, eventually acquired our own facility, we actually started hosting weekly prayer meetings where all the campus ministers gather every Friday morning for prayer. And it's become a very, very tight knit uh, community. So the emphasis of the study center uh, in general tends to be to complement what campus fellowships are doing with a strong emphasis on what you might call the integration of faith and learning or thinking Christianly. We draw heavily on the faith and work movement to help Mm -hmm. students think through what it means to pursue a vocation in a particular field and how to inhabit that field as thoughtful Christians. Um, so, so there are those sorts of distinctives as well. Okay. No, that's helpful. So, you know, you were doing outdoor education and then, you know, we're doing it in partnership with Cornell eventually, but you know, nothing in your resume said, you know, I'm a starter of a nonprofit, you know, you didn't necessarily have qualifications in terms of experience and starting a, a uh, nonprofit like the study center. So uh, especially when it comes to fundraising, which I'm sure was pivotal to its growth over time. Um, so uh, since that wasn't part of your background, I guess the question is, what did you learn about fundraising uh, from starting Chesterton house? Yeah, I learned a lot. And a lot of what I learned, I learned the hard way by doing things <laughs> wrong. And, you know, it's a real privilege now as director of the consortium to have the opportunity to coach and advise those who are starting new centers. And, um, you know, sometimes they ask me, you know, could you write up a little booklet on how to start a study center? And I only half jokingly say, well, I could more easily write a booklet on how not to start a study center <laughs> uh, because I really made a lot of mistakes along the way. But I will say, you know, having having been on staff with Cornell, um, I was always around fundraising hmm. and I, I did learn some things there. Uh, before making the move over to the study center. So I'll I'll just tell you a quick story. I mentioned that I designed uh, the Cornell University ropes course facility, which is the largest university-based ropes course in North America. It's quite a facility. And after I was hired to design it, I came up with this idea that as part of the design, we could actually build a replica of the Cornell clock tower, which is the sort of iconic image that everybody associates with the university. And we put it out for a quick spot bid and it was going to be like, you know, a hundred thousand dollars more than what we had for a pledge from the the benefactor to build the facility. Mm -hmm. And so it fell to my supervisor to call um, this alumnus and to say, uh, you know, hey, we've got this great idea, uh, but it's going to cost an extra $100,000. And I was, you know, sitting in his office, listening to this phone call, I could only hear his side of the phone call, wondering what was going to come of this call. And so, so he lays out the opportunity, and then there's silence, and I'm waiting, and waiting, <laughs> and waiting, and, and I'm hoping to hear the words, thank you, yeah, And that's not what I heard. What I heard was the words, you're welcome. Hmm. And I thought, that's astonishing. The fellow on the other end of the phone line was the one saying, thank you. And that hmm. was a real turning point for me because I realized in that moment that, you know, somebody like this alumnus um, 
has a fair amount of money to invest in various philanthropic opportunities. Uh, he's looking for a certain kind of return on investment. Mm. And when somebody provides him with an attractive opportunity to invest, it's a favor and a service of sorts to him. And mm. so he's the one saying, thank you. And my supervisor who's soliciting the funds is the one saying, you're welcome. That was a real turning point for me when I realized, okay, this is the way it's done, right? It's not just about asking people for money. It's about uh, casting vision, connecting people to the mission, giving them an opportunity to have input input, and even voice in, in how things are done um, and engaging them as partners in the process. So I, I had exposure to that even before starting Chesterton House. Now, at the same time, I will say I didn't always do things correctly. Um, you know, in the early years of the ministry, I, I, I kind of operated with this implicit assumption that, you know, if you build it, they will come. If you do some great programming and you just tell people about it, you know, all of a sudden your mailbox will will be filled with checks. And I very effectively disproved that theory. It turns out <laughs> simply not to be true. Um, there's there's really only one way to raise money, which is to go talk to people and say, "This is what we're doing." You know. Um, do you connect with this at the level of mission? You know, will you partner with us? You, you have to ask people for money or money is not going to, to, to come in. Um, so it took me a while uh, to learn that. Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah. M- most, I think most training for fundraisers uh, is on the job uh, learning uh, in that regard. So now you've transitioned out of Chesterton house and you're leading the consortium of Christian study centers. Um, uh of which you were part of starting uh, again. So just tell us about the Consortium of Christian Study Centers. What is its purpose and role? Sure. So um, for many years, you know, maybe 20 years or so, um, the various directors of the centers have gotten together periodically to compare notes. Um, so for example, in 2007 or so, I hosted uh, about a dozen or so folks up here in Ithaca, and we spent a long weekend together um, sharing uh, best practices and what I like to call worst practices, you know, the <laughs> war stories of, of what's not working as well as what's working. And it was a very rich time. And we resolved that weekend uh, to get together regularly. And it seems to make sense to actually formalize the effort. And so we founded this thing that we now call the Consortium of Christian Study Centers, which officially became an organization in 2008. And in 2009, Drew Trotter became the first full-time executive director of the organization. And the basic question that we ask ourselves constantly, uh, and I, I say we, I was on the board you know, from 2008 up until uh, just before I became the director mm-hmm. at, in January of this year. Um, the, the question we constantly ask ourselves is, is something along these lines. What can we do together that we can't do alone? Hmm. And, you know, it turns out there's actually a number of things. So the most obvious one is getting together annually for a meeting where we provide workshops mostly for each other uh, on what we're doing, what's working, what's not, 
um, and then brainstorming, you know, what we might do going forward. We do occasionally bring in outside experts on this and that or the, or the other topic, fundraising being, you know, one of them, strategic planning and, and other sorts of topics as well. Um, so this annual meeting that we've been holding for over a decade now is a real sort of signature service of the consortium to the broader Christian Study Center movement. And we've grown from an initial handful of member centers to now 34 member centers. So it's been a fair amount of growth over the last uh, 10 years. And we have, um, you know, a number of other uh, projects in the works as well. So for example, earlier this year, when I spoke to each of the center directors about how things are going, I, I heard a lot of them talk about the challenge of finding staff and a desire that there be um, a stronger pipeline of potential staff. And so as a result of that, we're now working with some foundations to create a national internship program where recent college grads could spend a year in a full-time internship for 12 months working for a study center. <laughs> and, um, you know, the idea is over the course of several years, uh, some of these folks will either stay on or possibly go to graduate school and return and become the next generation of study center staff. It just raises everybody's level of awareness about the extent to which this is a movement. You know, if you're a student, whether at, at Cornell or UVA or wherever, you might be involved in your study center, but you might not be aware of the fact that there are dozens of other study centers elsewhere. And so people don't necessarily immediately think, oh, this is something I could do for a living, right? But uh, if we can get students to have a, a greater level of awareness of the movement as such, I, you know, spend a year in employment, um, you know, hopefully that will sort of change the way that they're thinking about this. And it, it actually becomes a plausible career track for a certain number of folks. Yeah, no, that's, in that's uh, interesting. So, you know, what's it been like for you making this transition to leading a single study center to now having to think about 30 plus uh, study centers? You know, you're not responsible for them in the same way you were at Chesterton House, but still, uh, what's that transition been like for you? It's been really terrific, actually. Uh, I, I, I enjoy this work so much. It's a privilege to be in touch with, you know, the directors of these centers all over the country to learn about what they're doing and also to try to help them out. Um, you know, so just as an example, uh, the, the best ideas, this is not a top-down thing where, where we're planting centers or telling people what to do. Mm -hmm. The best ideas are generated on the ground in the trenches, but what the consortium can do is, um, give those ideas a broader audience, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll just take as an example, um, this, this model called the fellows program. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe it was initially started at Anselm house, mm -hmm. um, in, in, uh, Minnesota. If it wasn't started there, they at least have the most fully developed version of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they have a cohort of students, that goes through a curriculum over the course of a couple of years. And, you know, they're full-time students doing coursework in whatever their major is, but on the side, they're getting this robust um, sort of combination liberal arts education with uh, Christian uh, worldview um, 
framework. Uh, and it's really extraordinary. And it's all in community, in conversation, uh, because they're, they're with the same cohort over time. And now there's probably close to a dozen other study centers that have fellows programs like this, because we've had the folks from Anselm House give presentations on it at the annual meeting. And, um, you know, imitation, we don't need to constantly be reinventing things at at each of these centers. You know, we learn from each other and and imitate almost everything I did at Chesterton House was copied and pasted from some other center. And um, it's not, you know, it's not easy, but it's also not rocket science. So at this point, especially 20 years later, um, you know, if somebody wants to start a study center, I I was actually involved in helping launch the center at MIT last Hmm. year in 2020. Um, In a lot of ways, it's easier than it was 20 years ago. There's a lot more resources that are available. And there's also a much higher level of awareness among alumni. When you reach out to alumni and you say, we're starting a study center uh, 20 years ago, it was like, what? I I don't know what you're talking about. And um, now, especially following the publication of Charlie Cotherman's book, To Think Christianly, uh, a lot more people are really aware of study centers in general and, and of the movement. So yeah, you got to be part of obviously starting Chesterton House. You helped MIT get started. Uh, there's pr- there's people out there today who are thinking about starting a nonprofit. Um, I guess what's your advice to somebody who comes to you thinking about starting a nonprofit based on your experience? What would you tell them? I think the main thing I would say is this. Most people who start nonprofits, and this was certainly my experience, are so excited about doing something specific, getting something done, about running programming, that it's really easy for the large majority of your time and effort and attention to go into that rather than into the building the institutional infrastructure. But Starting a nonprofit, especially if you have any hope of the thing being sustainable and passed on and not just being a kind of means towards supporting your own personal ministry, um, you really have to think of it very differently than, you know, personal support raising for for a personal ministry. Yeah. Uh, So there, you know, you have to pay attention to systems and to infrastructure. The analogy that I like to use is this you're basically driving a train at the same time that you're laying the tracks that the train (laughs) is being driven on. And you have to be careful to balance those two things because if the train gets too much energy, it goes off the tracks. Hmm. And you don't, if you don't have a strategic plan in place, the organization can easily become directionless, just chasing after any and every opportunity that, that comes your way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you run into sustainability issues, you know, yeah. for whatever reason, uh, you as the director may need to move on, whether it's for health reasons or some other reason. And if you don't have systems and infrastructure in place, um, either the thing is not going to continue to exist or you're just leaving a pile of problems for whoever the unfortunate person is that, yeah. that follows you. Um, so I would say, you know, paying attention to the infrastructure is absolutely critical. And then related to that um, is 
the recruitment and selection and training of board members is incredibly important. And this is a, a part of organizations that is largely invisible to most people. You, you often don't really see board members or board work, but it's very, very important. And you have to have people who, who get the mission at a deep level in the context of a Christian ministry. Of course, you, you need and want people who are very committed to praying for the mission of the organization and for the staff and, and those whom you're serving. Um, so building the board uh, is something that is worthy of a lot of good quality time and effort as well. No, that's a good word. Cause I, I think you're right. I think so many go into the work with a passion for programs, not realizing what it's going to take to actually build something. Um, and so that's, that's a wise word. So, you know, going back to your own personal journey, you know, uh, you're, you're a, you're Dr. Johnson, you have a doctoral degree, uh, and your, your area of expertise academically was in leisure and recreation. And so I'm just interested, um, what are, you know, we're coming out of a pandemic that disrupted lives. Uh, and so our work and rest rhythms became, I mean, probably the biggest shift I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, so I guess I'm curious to hear from you since this is your area of expertise, what, what trends are you seeing that have emerged? What have we gotten better at work and rest and all these things? <laughs> What's your take on it? Yeah, well, it's a huge question. Um, and, uh, we can observe trends, but of course, we don't know where these trends are going. As a historian, I'm very skeptical about assuming the future is some kind of an extension of what we see in the present, because it usually just turns out not to be the case. Yeah. Um, you know, that said, just to, to start with some basic observations, um, you know, uh, a lot of people are working at home more. That's mm -hmm. probably the single biggest thing uh, on the kind of recreation leisure end of things. Um, you know, there's good and there's bad. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people are getting outdoors more. Uh, you know, we, for example, stopped going to the gym and started just doing more stuff mm -hmm. outdoors. And, and there's an aspect of that that's been very good. Um, other people have, have really struggled um, and become much less active. And uh, almost all of us have more screen time than we used to have. Um, so that's not necessarily a, a positive trend. Um, what, what this disruption with respect to work and remote work is going to mean for the long-term, boy, that is a big question. And I don't know exactly, um, but uh, my colleague, Dan Hummel, who's a, a colleague, a fellow historian um, at Upper House, the Christian Study Center in Madison, Wisconsin, recently published an article in Current where he talks about the fact that, you know, this experiment of remote work has been tried before, uh, and, and people have written about it going back into the 1970s and the 1980s. Of course, this was you know pre pre internet. It looked yeah. different, but um, one of the interesting observations that he makes, or was made, you know, back at the time, was that there's this kind of initial honeymoon period where people say, "Wow, I get to work from home. The flexibility is great." You know. And this can actually last for as long as a few years before people start realizing, you know, wow, there are things not only that I miss, but my, my life is sort of, you know, somewhat less well-ordered socially, you know, than it used to be. 
Um, the isolation takes its toll, but the very ways in which our lives are structured, our, our low density neighborhoods, you know, kind of assume that we're getting out of these places and into more public spaces, the world of work, so to speak. And so the retreat from offices um, has huge implications for the way we live in, in ways that I think we will not know for years. Yeah. Um, I'll offer two other sort of reflections on this pandemic as a disruption to our lives in light of other experiences, one of which is within most of our memories and lifetimes and, and one of which not so much. Um, so 9-11 was a huge disruption, right? And in the days following 9-11, um, it was a common place to say everything has changed. You know, the world will never be the same. Richard John Newhouse famously said, you know, welcome back from your hedonistic holiday from history. And yet it seems like after things settled, aside from the fact that we have to arrive at the airport a little bit earlier, um, an awful lot has not changed, uh, at least in, in the way we think about how we go about our lives since 9-11. I'm not sure that it was really the disruption that we all thought it was going to be at the moment. Um, again, I don't like to predict the future, but, but, I, but I think there's something about human nature that's captured in that, that we, we do tend to revert um, quickly and easily to the way of being that's familiar, that we know. Um, and if you think about it, the same thing is true in a different sort of a way in the story of the Exodus, right? Uh, yeah. God is leading his people out of slavery. He gives them the gift of the Sabbath day, which is this very concrete experience of liberation from work. Now, many of us were without work last year during the pandemic. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, it was an opportunity to raise really fundamental questions about the nature of work and whether or not we had actually allowed ourselves to become enslaved in various ways mm -hmm. to work. And yet when you read the story of the Exodus, what's striking is that, you know, the response was not, you know, wow, let's have a festival to celebrate this. It was, hey, Moses, can't we go back to Egypt? You know, we were well taken care of there, right? Um, and I, I, again, I think there's something in human nature about that story and whether or not we will learn deep lessons from this pandemic or simply revert, you know, to our previous ways of, of working and living, um, I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, there are, no, that's... there are some historical reasons to think yeah. that we don't learn lessons easily. No, that's a, that's a good word. Uh, no, that's, that's insightful. Uh, well, you know, I, I love any conversation that includes both the Chesterton quote and a Newhouse quote. It's hard to work that <laughs> one conversation, but we managed to do it. So, uh, well, Carl, I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, share your experience and offer insights to folks, uh, it's always enjoyable to uh, talk with you. Great to speak with you as well, Andy. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Carl as much as I did. Uh, can I just reiterate uh, his point that what drives people to start a nonprofit is their passion for the program, 
But what will make the nonprofit grow and last with continual impact is sound infrastructure, a strong core of governance, fundraising tactics, communications, marketing. Those are the things that are often set to the side as almost uh, tangents to the uh, to the work when actually they are what is going to make the work possible long term. So thanks to Carl for being on the show. Make sure you check us out uh, on your streaming service. Give us a review. Give us a like. Subscribe. Tell your friends about us. And we'll see you on our next episode. If you want to learn more about growing donor relationships through strategic communications, make sure you visit roundtreeagency.com. See you again soon. Music